Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Redeemer Church. If you're new here, we're glad that you've come. I have a couple of announcements to make before we begin our worship service. Two of them are alerting you to things that are in the bulletin, but I want you to pay special attention to them. First, next Sunday, after the morning worship service, you'll see an announcement in your bulletin under News and Events, right-hand column. Um, there is a dinner for college and career-age young adults. So if you're in that category, you can see the information there. Please pay special note of that. And then at the bottom of that same uh, column, you'll see a choir opportunity announcement. Um, starting next Sunday after the morning worship service, there will be rehearsals for a Thanksgiving choir. If you have any questions, you can see contact information um, in that announcement. And then the other thing that you'll notice as you came in is after this morning service, we will have a town hall meeting for our congregation. Um, there's been a lot of work put into this in terms of the food, the prep, and also what we're going to talk about. Thank you for the questions that you sent. After the service is done, you'll have some announcements about where to go. You'll find your place in the back. Pastor Jonathan, who's preaching, will tell you what to do after the service is done. And then once you're seated, I'll give you instructions about what will happen then. So just file out after the service to a spot where you can sit, and we will start our town hall meeting. If you are visiting and you did not come prepared for that, you are more than welcome to stay. In fact, I'd encourage you to. Um, if you were not prepared and you need to leave after the service, you're also more than welcome to do, to do that. That is not awkward in the least. So we are here to worship our God, and before we begin that worship, we're going to spend a few minutes uh, preparing a heart. So would you join me in a moment of prayer and preparation? God has brought us here this morning, and now he calls us to worship with this description of who we are and what it means to be here this morning. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Would you stand with me? Let's proclaim those excellencies as we sing. May the peoples praise you.
Let's pray. Father, we do mark the blessings that you've given us and how these blessings lead us to praise you. They bring us here this morning. We look back over a week full of good things. Maybe there were sorrowful things as well, but by your divine care, we have come to this point ready to worship you. And Father, we pray that our worshiping community would stand as evidence of your kingdom's presence in this world. That for those who are looking for hope and a future, they would come and hear and they would see that Jesus Christ is busy and active in this world. Father, we ask for your blessing in each part of our worship today. Fill us with your spirit. Lead us, Father, into the depths of your word to appreciate the fullness of who Christ is, to see ourselves as we truly are in the light of your law, and to see the grace that comes through our Savior Jesus. It is in him that we pray. Amen.
seated. Most of you will never have the experience of standing up here and hearing everyone sing a song like that. But it's one of the beauties of being the pastor or worship leader that I can hear that. This morning we're turning our attention at this point in our service to our confession of faith, by which I mean that not simply what we confess to be true, but a confession of what is in our hearts, a confession of sin. And we're going to use two things for that. The first is a passage from Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30, and then the Westminster Larger Catechism, question answer 139. We have been reciting the catechism together. Today I'd like to reverse that and recite the passage together, and then the catechism I'll read to you. It's a long and rather complicated catechism question and answer. So Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30, you'll see that printed behind me. Would you read that with me? You've heard it said that it was... Let's start again. I didn't read it accurately. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And then the question answer 139, and notice this is the updated language. What are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the the neglect of the duties, I'm going to have to read this up here. (laughs) The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications or listening to them, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of maintaining prostitution, it should say keeping or maintaining prostitution, and resorting to it, entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorces or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations too, or acts of uncleanness either in ourselves or in others." Oh my, what a list. What I want to highlight for you is just two things in that long list. And I want you to consider your heart in light of these two things. The first is something that is very much a question of culture in which we live. And I could highlight all the ways in which sexual immorality is common in our culture. It doesn't list specifically pornography, but that's a big problem in our culture. Maybe some of us struggle with that. 
Maybe it is something else with sexual immorality, even if we don't commit the physical act of sexual immorality. Anything that leads us to that is forbidden by the catechism. And I want to note that those sins are forbidden. As much as our culture may say, they're fine, don't worry about it, it's natural. The catechism says, but it's contrary to the law of God, and it harms other image bearers. These are not victimless sins. They are sins that harm those around us. That's the first thing I want to note. The second thing is that this question and answer also highlight parts of what it means to be human that often we forget. For example, it says in this question and answer, the neglect of marriage. It is very common in our culture to delay marriage for many, many years, to wait until 30 or 35 to get married. There are other things that are more important. Maybe it is my career. Maybe it is I'm just living with someone anyway, so it doesn't matter. I just delay marriage for a long time. But marriage in the Bible is to be esteemed. It is a really good thing. It is a primary way in which God keeps us as human beings from loneliness. It is not to be unduly delayed, according to this question and answer, And in my mind, and maybe in yours as well, that pushes hard against some of the things that we often assume to be naturally true. Marriage is something I decide to do in my own timing, for my own means, whenever it makes me happy. The other thing that this really pushes on in terms of contemporary thought is the way in which things that are meant to be private are made public and things that are public are then made private. What do I mean by that? It's this. Because sexual activity, human sexuality, is such a common topic for discussion in our culture, often the way we as a church respond, and especially as families respond, is that we say we're just not going to talk about it then. And that is also wrong, deeply wrong. In fact, the primary way in which your children will learn about godly sexuality is through you as a parent. The primary way in which you will grow as a couple is through your conversation with each other about what pleases the Lord within your marriage. So if you are a parent and you haven't talked to your children sufficiently about what the Bible says about the seventh commandment, here's what I'm calling you to this morning. Do it. Not to is a violation of the seventh commandment. Do it at an age level that's appropriate in the way they will understand, but to not talk about it is seriously harming them. And within your marriage, if you're not talking about the seventh commandment and what the Bible says about the seventh commandment within marriage, you're harming your partner and you're not obeying the seventh commandment. You are to speak openly in your private relationship about the seventh commandment and its implications. Publicly, where our culture talks about it as though it's a light thing to be treated in a way that has no seriousness, offends the God who made us as human beings. And to honor the seventh commandment, both the catechism and Matthew 5, is to say this commandment is called, calls us to love our God above all else and our neighbor Even those within our homes, our children and our spouses, our friends and those closest to us in a way that pleases the Lord. Would you bow in a moment of repentance with me as you consider the seventh commandment?
Our Father, when we consider ourselves in the light of your commandment not to commit adultery, but to treat human sexuality in a way that honors you as our creator and as a blessing to those who are around us, Lord, we confess that our minds have wandered during this past week, that the intentions of our hearts often have violated what Jesus says in Matthew 5. And we are here to be honest with you, to be open before you, not to tuck away into the dark recesses of our hearts our sins, but to speak openly before you our desire for repentance and to turn to you to seek the grace of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us as a people from simply being nice on the outside and yet struggling deeply with sin on the inside. Instead, reverse that. That we would be those in which you are doing a great work of change, of growth and sanctification, because we can be honest in the right places with the right people, and especially before you. We can be honest of our need for the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would hear our prayers. We come in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that is true about sexual sin is that there is a lot of shame connected to that sin. And shame is simply the desire to remain hidden. When you feel ashamed, you don't want anyone to see you. You want to run far from God. You want to pretend as though no one can tell what we have done. But before our God who sees and knows all things, there is no need for shame. If you've repented, come before your God with no need to hide. In Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 17, at the end of that verse it says, But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you do not forsake them. That is the mercy of God spoken to you this morning. Let's stand to sing, with joy there's power in the blood.
Please be seated and join me in a prayer of thanksgiving. Almighty God, how thankful we are to be free from the burden and the shame of sin. Thank you for shedding your blood to cleanse us. We recognize that without your sacrifice, we would be without hope. We are so blessed to be gathered here together in your house this morning to sing, pray, meditate on you, and to have our pastors and singers and musicians lead us before your throne in worship. We thank you for the opportunities you provided this past week to learn more about serving you and others through our Bible studies, various ministries, and the parenting conference here at Redeemer. Lord, may we demonstrate our gratefulness by living out what we have learned. And Lord, we are so in awe of the beauty we see in creation. As the leaves flare into bright reds and yellows and the air grows crisp, we are reminded of the way you uphold times and seasons. Thank you for these tangible, visible reminders of your unconditional faithfulness to us, a faithfulness which we could never perfectly imitate or repay. Just as we see your constant faithfulness demonstrated in the changing of the seasons, we recognize your faithfulness in the way you sustain us spiritually through the faithful proclamation of your word week in and week out. We offer thanks for our pastors who diligently and prayerfully guide us through scripture and for your spirit who makes it possible for us, your creatures, to understand your truth. As we anticipate turning to scripture in a few moments, we thank you for the deep, sometimes mysterious truths you communicate to us in scripture, such as the relationship between the Father and Son. And as we now have an opportunity to give back to you, we pray that you find our hearts overflowing with eagerness, cheerfulness, and gratitude, and that you would guide all those involved in the stewarding of these offerings. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
it's turned on. It's green. Yes, no, maybe so. Is it this? Is it me? Is it this? You want me to just use this? Use the podium. They'll figure it out while we pray. So, anyway, so far in our service, we have heard uh, our God's call for us to worship Him, and we have responded in song. We have heard His call for us to repent and turn from our sin, which we have done in confession uh, of our sin. And He has given us His assurance of our pardon. We have responded to Him with thanks and with giving of our offering, and now we have an opportunity to intercede uh, for those in our community who have asked for prayer. So please join with me in that time of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come so thankful that you know us, that you love us, that you have revealed yourself to us, that by faith we may know you and enjoy your love now and forevermore. You know the burdens of every person on our list and for every concern of every person that may be not published publicly. And we pray, Lord, that you would draw near to each one, that they would know that you are full of compassion and kindness. We praise you for the certainty we have in your character that your grace is sufficient for us. We pray, Lord, for those who are mourning loved ones. We pray for Gloria and Jack Ustama as they mourn the passing of Gloria's father. Lord, we praise you for the long life that he had and as he is now worshiping in the presence of his Savior. Lord, we ask you as well for mercy for Amalia and her parents, Tom and Cassie Baker. Thank you that her surgery went well. We ask you to give her healing and her parents' patience as she recovers. But we also thank you that my son Timothy's foot was not broken and that you would help him make a full recovery. We also ask you to help my brother Peter as he heals from his bicycle accident, help his scapula, his clavicle, and his rib heal very soon, and use this situation to draw him to yourself. Lord, thank you for the progress that El Platt has made and the healing of uh, her broken ribs. Please help her make a full recovery very soon. Thank you as well, Lord, for the good results of Dan Corhorn's last PET scan. Lord, help his family as they walk with him through this fight with cancer. Lord, please continue your healing grace for Karen DeBoer as, you, as she deals with uh, long COVID. Thank you that she and the family could enjoy celebrating her parents' anniversary in Canada. And we just ask that you would help her, uh, you would guide the doctors and all that they do to treat her, that they would be very effective in your timing. Lord, help our dear brother Zach Francois and all of the Haitian Christians uh, that are facing these horrendous and very uh, sad and terrible conditions in Haiti. Lord, that you would help subdue evil, that you would bring about uh, your grace and your mercy in a way that would bring uh, true change to the hearts of those that are causing violence. We also think of all of our uh, the Christians that are living in Israel and Palestine who are dealing with uh, such chaos that you would help them be faithful witnesses among uh, those uh, in, that are in danger. We ask you to subdue all evil, uh, Lord, in that situation that you would enable um, righteousness to prosper and that you would save uh, those uh, that do not know you and turn them uh, to have hearts that would understand their need for Jesus Christ, and that you would bring about peace in that situation as you alone can do. 
Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would be with the expectant parents in our church as well. We thank you so much for the incredible blessing uh, that we have of uh, so many young families. And, and uh, we pray for uh, Mitchell and Megan, uh, for Tim and Audra, uh, for John and Rachel, for Tom and Emily, uh, Dan and Katie, Mike and Kaylin, and Phil and Marissa. Lord, we give you praise uh, for each one of these little ones in the womb and for the gift that they are to their families and to our church, uh, that you would give them safety and care uh, and during their uh, months uh, 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 as they form and as you are, are accomplishing even what your word says, uh, knitting them together in their mother's womb. Lord, we're so grateful uh, for the gift that they are. We ask that you would be also with our sister church, uh, Emmanuel, in uh, Marksdale, Ontario, uh, as they are dealing with a pulpit search and uh, seeking a pastor uh, to shepherd them, Lord, that you would do your great work to guide the shepherd that you want to be there as your under-shepherd, one that will lead that congregation in the way they should go uh, by your word and spirit, and that you would uh, comfort and care for them during this this interim time. We also pray for those in authority uh, as we go through our list, praying for Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would do a work in her heart Uh, to recognize uh, that she is answerable to you as the almighty authority over all things, uh, that you would humble her in uh, that recognition, uh, that you would help her to understand um, that all the things that she does uh, for good and for bad, uh, Lord, that you would um, do what you can to guide in a way that would be what's best for the people that she represents, uh, that you would uh, also uh, guide us in our wisdom as we uh, are engaged in this governing of our own uh, constitutional republic and that you would give us wisdom in all that we can do uh, in prayer as well as our our actions to uh, further uh, what is right and good and honoring to you. Father, we also pray for our military personnel, for Eric Boll, for Chris Heisinger, and for Zach McMaster. Uh, Thank you for their service and our uh, armed forces. We ask that you would give them Uh, grace and mercy in all that they do, that you would keep them safe, that you would uh, guide all those that seek to defend our freedoms uh, that you have given to us and that your mercy would reign. But we also pray for our persecuted church in Iraq. Lord, we are just struck uh, by a young man who was willing to bear testimony to Jesus Christ unto his own death and how this pastor has lost his friend Um, And we just are asking for your mercy upon this pastor, upon his congregation, as they are trying to deal with how to walk with you in the midst of a uh, life-threatening circumstance that they live in. And we just ask that your mercy would be upon this church and upon all those brothers and sisters who are affected by this brother's passing. Lord, we are grateful for whatever ways that you are going to work within each one of our hearts this morning. Uh, that you would use your word uh, in a very significant way, Lord, to impact us so that we would draw near to you and understand that you alone are Lord and that you have called us to be one with you by your spirit through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Test, test. I'm over here. I'm over here. Still, still nothing. Okay. I will resort to the pulpit mic. Well, if you would please open with me your copy of God's Word to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Uh, we have been uh, learning uh, through this section of John about Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Now, the Jewish leaders, as we have seen, uh, as 
sadly, in opposition uh, to the work and the uh, words of Jesus, and uh, they are doing whatever they can to catch Jesus saying something or doing something so that they can condemn him. Now, they are blind to the miracle of the blind man, kind of ironic, right? They are proclaiming themselves as shepherds of Israel, and yet they deny the true shepherd. Again, the irony. Now, these leaders continue trying to trip up Jesus in his words during our text, uh, having him proclaim himself as the Christ, God's promised Savior. But what they end up doing instead is revealing their own hearts. Now, I hope that the Lord would reveal to us our hearts this morning as he uh, shows us that God is unified in his mission. And so we must trust his one plan, his one purpose, and his one path. That God is unified in his mission so that we would trust him in his one plan, his one purpose, and his one path. Please follow along as I read from John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. This is indeed the word of the living God. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my, fa- of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one." The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Who is 
Jesus. That is the most important question that every single human being must answer. And your answer to that question is the difference between eternal life and eternal damnation. And so as we see from John's Gospel, John is an evangelist. He wants the world to understand that there is only one way to be saved, and it is by faith in Jesus Christ. In this text, John helps us take yet another step to understand who Jesus is. Now, the Pharisees had theological doctorates, and yet they were blind to the truth about Jesus as the Christ, as prophesied in the Old Testament. They were blind shepherds. And they were still trying to lead Israel. They stood in the way of the true word to come to God's people. I mean, the irony in John 9 and chapter 10 is so thick, it's pretty incredible. Now, we... Here a few weeks ago, you know, last week the blind or two weeks ago, the blind man being healed, and we are excited to see this wonderful, amazing miracle about what God is doing. And how do the Pharisees respond to that? Right? They condemn the man who is healed, trying to do something to get evidence against Jesus. Isn't it interesting that when we demonize a person, he's already wrong, and all we're doing is looking for evidence. Isn't that sad among human relations? Well, it's most stark here between the Pharisees and Jesus. Now, the leaders are blind to the fact that from the very beginning, God has given us one plan. Verse 22 says that the event that was taking place was the feast of dedication, also called the Festival of Lights. And if some of you have translations in the footnote, it might say the celebration of Hanukkah. Yes, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Now, this was not an Old Testament feast, but it was rather a celebration of the overthrow of the first wave of the Roman army, this led by Judas Maccabeus in 164 B.C. They restored the desecrated temple, and a feast of dedication was made for them to uh, rededicate the temple to God. So there's our history lesson on Hanukkah. Now, As we think about Jesus coming, right, he came to protect his people from false teachers desecrating the temple as well. And so we see in verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, why are the Jews still blind to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah? Because they didn't believe what the Scriptures said about Him. For instance, Isaiah 29. It says in verse 18, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. That day, the day of the Lord has come. Jesus, the Messiah, has shown up. 
And by his words and by his miracles, we see all of the connections between the prophecies and what he is doing. So why are these very biblically educated men rejecting what is so plain to them? Because their blindness is spiritual. Scripture also calls it spiritual deadness. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, For you are dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Historically, this is known as the doctrine of total depravity. Now, during the Reformation week that we've enjoyed this week, it is very helpful for us to review the doctrines of grace uh, that have been handed down to us uh, theologically, but also very clearly from John chapter 10. Now, the followers of John Calvin addressed the heresies that were being taught by the followers of Jacob Arminius, and they have responded with an acronym of TULIP, right? And so T of the TULIP that we just talked about is talking about the nature of man. It is a question of, is man basically good, or is he totally depraved? And so all the false teachings that we're aware of begin by this, by addressing a false teaching of the nature of man. And so in this particular situation, uh, some people deny the fact that we are blind and dead spiritually by nature. Some people would say we're just merely spiritually sick, and many others would just say we are ignorant is the main problem. Now, we, uh, what's, what we are learning here is the total depravity is total in the sense that it encompasses and influences the entire person. It is not saying uh, that it, we are as evil as we could be, right? Thankfully, by God's common grace, he restrains the sin that is natural to our hearts or we would be robbing and stealing and killing every person every day that got in our way like we were savage beasts if we were going to be as evil as we possibly could be. And thankfully, that's not what is happening. And so the point in the relation to the passage is that every person, the Jewish leaders included, will remain dead in sin and blind to who Jesus is until the Spirit of God gives them new life and gives them eyes to see the Savior, ears to hear his word, and faith to trust in him. The next doctrine taught in our text is the you, unconditional election. Now, unconditional simply means it is not based on what God saw in the future about anything good in us or any future faith, as some have taught. Now, the question is, have you, or have you ever wondered why you believe but your neighbor does not? What's the reason? Is it just because of ignorance? And I would say certainly not because I've shared the gospel with lots and lots of people who did not believe. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, the only perfect evangelist that has ever existed, preached the gospel and people did not believe. And so clearly ignorance is not the primary reason. Well, is it simply because, I mean, we're just smarter than those dumb unbelievers? If If that pride lurks in our hearts, even a hint of that, we could never reach anyone. If it's just we think we're smarter, certainly not that. No, Jesus said plainly to the religious leaders in verse 26, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. 
Now, many Christians today assume just the opposite of what Jesus said. They will teach and they will preach that if you hear the gospel and you repent and you put your faith in Jesus, then you become his sheep. It's just that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. I mean, Ephesians 1 is very clear that God chose us before the foundation of the world. In 1 John chapter 4, it says we love him because he first loved us. And so if you really want the most direct teaching on this issue, just take some time and prayerfully walk through Romans chapter 9 and ask the Lord to show you what does the scriptures teach about unconditional election. Well, we know that the Father is the one who elects. Next, we see that the Son is the one who atones. Right? We learned last week in John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for who? I lay down my life for the sheep. It does not say he lays down his life for the goats. Right? These, this has been called the doctrine of limited atonement, the L of tulip. Now, many people, this is where they stumbled, and you know, we have four-point Calvinists. This is, this is the one they would reject, right? It's saying, you know, I'm, I'm not believing in a limited atonement. So some have said, well, we don't really like that language. We're going to change it a little bit. We're going to call it particular redemption, right? It makes it a little more clear what we're talking about. But every Christian limits the atonement in one way or another. If you follow what Jesus and Paul are saying, then you limit the number of people for whom Jesus died. And if you're following what others would say, we would actually be limiting the number of sins that Jesus died for. So we ask ourselves, if Jesus died for every human being that ever lived, then why is every human being not going to be in heaven? Because scripture is clear that some will not be. So the person might answer, because they reject Jesus. Well, that's true. But the question is, if Jesus died for every single sin that was ever committed, it would include the sin of rejecting Jesus. And if that is paid for, then the Father has nothing with which to withhold that person from heaven. And so the only other answer we could conclude is that Jesus died for the sheep, as he said. And that's the conclusion. Now, if you disagree with that, I would love to talk with you more about that. Sometimes this is something that you might wrestle with, and it's a hard thing to understand. I'd love to walk with you through that if that's something you'd like to do. Now we come to the eye of Tulip. Jesus said in the next verse, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and what do they do? They follow me. He says it even more explicitly in John chapter 6. When Jesus said in verse 37, all that the Father give me will come uh, to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He's jumping into the next uh, perseverance, which we'll get to in a minute. Now, this is the doctrine of irresistible grace, right, which theologians have renamed effectual calling. Now, all people whom the Father elected and for whom the Son died, right, will come by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what about choice, we might ask? And so let me give the choice to you. Here's the question. Would you rather spend eternity in the blessings of God or eternity 
receiving his just wrath. Which one would you rather have? If you believe the scriptures, it is an irresistible choice. We're saying, of course, I would want heaven. The the Spirit draws us because we believe this is true. Jesus is the only way. We read in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so what we have to realize is faith does not well up from within a dead soul. It does not come from us. It is a gift of God that His Spirit must give us after He regenerates us and gives us new life. Then He gives us faith to hear, to believe, to trust in Jesus. Now, my friends, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is why understanding sound theology is so important. Right? The church has wrestled with the relationship of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility for thousands of years. And yet, it is not just something to debate for theologians in seminaries and universities. It comes down to asking the question, who saves me? Does God save me? Do I save me, or is it God and me? That's the question that we're trying to have answered. And most would say, well, I know God saves. I know that's the truth. But many would say, Jesus did his part. He lived, he died, he rose again, and I have to do my part to believe. But if we understand what Ephesians 2 says, we're knowing we're not capable of that as those who are dead in sin. It must be done and given to us. That's why Jesus said in verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are unified in one plan of salvation that existed from before the foundation of the world so that your assurance of salvation is rooted in the very character of God. He is the only one that can enable us to persevere unto the very end as we rest in Christ and in His promises. Now God not only has one plan, but He also has one purpose. Look again at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Our Lord Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth with one purpose. He came to fulfill his Father's will. Jesus said that he and the Father are one. And if there is one thing the Jews were certain of, is that there is one God. Every single day, they would recite the Shema from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the Jews could not conceive of a trinity of God being one God in three persons, even though it is clearly found in the Old Testament, in Genesis, in Psalms, and many other places, the Trinity is very clear. But what it requires is the light of the New Testament to make it abundantly clear. And so the Jews were right about one thing. Jesus was claiming 
to be God. Dr. R.C. Sproul compared this trial to the similar trial that Martin Luther went through with the Diet of Worms and was told to recant the writings that he had laid out on a table before him. He said that he had written many things that many of the Catholic scholars had agreed with and had written themselves. So which teaching specifically is he supposed to recant? And so in a similar way, right, Jesus says, for which of my miracles are you going to stone me? And what you see is if the persecutor, or the prosecutor, I guess is the right word, the prosecutor is not making their case clearly to articulate what the exact crime is, then they have failed in their job. And so Jesus defends himself from God's word, saying in verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus is quoting from Psalm 82, where God addresses the uh, abusive judges that are in Israel. The term God is not only referring to our Lord, but generically the word God is someone who has a sovereign power over a particular sphere. Now, the judges of Psalm 82 served as sovereign power over Israel, but they abused their power, much like the Pharisees were doing in our context. And in Psalm 82, God is declaring the judgment uh, upon them because he is God over every sphere. He is the God above all gods. And so Jesus simultaneously defended uh, calling himself the Son of God while at the exact same time rebuking the Pharisees who were acting like these abusive judges. Jesus is perfectly wise as we well know. Now, many heretics have actually used these verses to try to say Jesus is just saying he's no different than these judges, which is exactly opposite of what Jesus is doing. He is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. If the Old Testament calls these mere mortals gods in their particular sphere of authority, how much more appropriate if the one who came from God and performed divine miracles, how much more worthy is Jesus to call himself one with God, to call himself the Son of God, to call himself uh, one with the Father? Now, Jesus continues in his defense, uh, saying that he has one purpose, saying in verse 37, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Now, Jesus has made his identity known in word, in deed, but the religious leaders refuse to believe because of the deadness of their hearts and the pride uh, that exists there, uh, resisting God in the hardness of their hearts. Their desire was to have no connection with Jesus whatsoever. They desired no oneness with him, but Jesus desires oneness with us. He and the Father are one, 
And we will see in just a few chapters in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he takes this exact same language and then applies it to us. He says in verse 20, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What did Jesus say is the purpose of such oneness? It is that, the purpose clause, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's all about the faithfulness of our witness. And so I wonder, are you one with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you stand opposed to someone? Do you avoid someone? Do you disregard someone who is made in the image of God and bought by the precious blood of Jesus? All conflict and all disunity harms our witness in enabling the world to know that Jesus came to reconcile sinners to a holy God and sinners to one another. That is the ministry of reconciliation that we have been given as a church. Jesus has delegated that to us. And so I want to ask you, where is your heart this morning? Do you spend more time thinking about what threat another person might be to your life, to your own power, to your own preferences. Well, if that's us, then we're showing we have a more rebellious heart like the Pharisees. And I think all of us, I know I am, a recovering Pharisee. But the question is, with that pride that lurks in our hearts, do we hate it when we see it, or do we just give it full reign in our mouths and in our lives and in our relationships? Well, the Lord is the only one that can convict our hearts and redirect us to the humility of Jesus, to the one who walked with the Father doing what he called us to do, and that is to draw us together in unity. And so Jesus came to reveal that one purpose, to glorify the Father by doing his will. Now, we failed in that, right? Jesus is the only one that ever lived the perfect life that we failed to live, right? He's the only one who died on the cross to pay the sin debt that our sins deserve, and he is the only one to rise again from the dead. So that as we turn from that sin, from any of our sin, to trust in him alone, that we can have that hope of forgiveness and eternal life. Scripture is clear about these promises. And it shows us, thirdly, that there is one Path. First, we saw there's one plan. Second, we saw there's one purpose. And lastly, there is one path. Look again at verse 40. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, Though John never performed a miraculous sign, 
all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Now, Jesus made a strategic retreat at this point. Why would he do that? Because his time had not yet come. And yet he still retreats only to then advance the kingdom more by having people come to him where they had been gathering for months and years during the ministry of John the Baptist. He's brilliant. Oh, that's right. He's God. He's perfect. So he knows what he's doing. But when we think about all of these religious leaders who have the greatest theological education of the day, rejecting the words of Jesus and the person of Jesus, and yet you have the weak and the broken The ones who recognize, I don't have it all together. I'm not the best. I fall short of God's glory. Those are the ones that are coming to Christ and they're saying, He's the one. The Savior's come and they believed. And so John the Baptist knew in his ministry he must decrease and Jesus must increase. And that's exactly what we are seeing in this particular passage of Scripture. John's purpose was to prepare a people to receive the Christ. And the Christ has come. And so my question is for you is where is your heart this morning? Some of you have grown up hearing the good news and you've never remember a day of not believing in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And we praise the Lord for that. That was our prayer for our boys as they were growing up, that they would always know the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord. The question for us is, have we walked faithfully in the oneness with our Father and in the oneness with His people so that we can testify in an effective way to the world that we are really those that are saved by grace because we want to offer that grace in each of our relationships. Well, the Lord is the only one who can do that work. Perhaps you're harboring bitterness against the Lord. Maybe you're harboring bitterness against another believer or more. The Lord can bring you to a place of recognizing that all of these things that have happened, all the wrath, that those sins deserve was laid upon our Lord Jesus Christ and He can set us free from that bitterness. Now others perhaps have heard about Jesus. Maybe you've been in church. Maybe you haven't for uh, your growing up years. But maybe you have never given over total control of your life to say, He is the one that I will follow. Not my will, but His be done. He is the one that I want to follow. I'm asking you, where has your own path led you thus far? The devil, his tactic is to distract you, to divide you, and to destroy you. And if your path sounds more like that, the question is, will you turn to the path of Jesus, which is the path of life? Will you hear the words of your Savior calling you? Do you hear the voice of your shepherd saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, for I am gentle. He calls us to that one path to trust in Him alone. And so I call you to come, because in Jesus, He is our only hope in life, and in death. Let's pray together. 
Father, you know our hearts perfectly. You know how quickly we look to the left and to the right and hope that someone else hears and turns. And yet, Lord, what are you calling me to do? What are you calling me to do in hearing the voice of my shepherd? Is it to reconcile with one I'm divided from? Is it to reconcile with you as one I am divided from? Lord, you alone can do that work and show us the power and the glory of your gospel and of your grace. We ask you to do your great work. We pray it in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. Well, let us respond to our Savior as we stand to sing his praise. Please stand.
Amen. Uh, after the benediction and the doxology, we are going to have the wonderful opportunity of enjoying uh, a lunch together. And uh, it's a little bit different than what we normally do. Uh, jo- uh, Jeanette and John have been working so diligent with them and their team, so grateful for their hard work. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to move uh, out of the sanctuary. If you use the restroom, whatever you have to do, but then find a seat at one of the tables. And uh, we are hoping you'll fill in all the little spaces that are there so that everybody has a place. Uh, we're not going to do the coffee right away, but it is coming, so just don't, don't be concerned. Um, so during the meal time, during the dessert time, we will have that. But once you're seated, uh, Pastor Jeff will pray and give further instructions about how we're going to do our family meal together. So here is uh, the blessing of your Heavenly Father. May the God of, of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.